Namaste and thanks for tuning in to the Ek Women podcast where we bring you stories of women who may have moved countries or been raised outside their motherland but still found their niche and achieved success. The Ek Women tribe is inspirational and gutsy. Like our guest today, Shaheen Mistri, CEO of Teach for India and founder of Akanksha. Just a heads up, we taped this during the pandemic and have left in some relevant references. Shaheen is known globally for her dedication and commitment to educational equity. After growing up in 5 countries and attending 10 schools, Shaheen had the world at her doorstep but chose to return to India at 18 and start Akanksha. She worked tirelessly to provide underprivileged kids an education that would give them a foot up in life. In fact, a bit of a segue, but when I lived in Pune, I volunteered at Akanksha for a number of years. It was one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life. The enthusiasm and smiles of the children alone is worth the effort. Shaheen went on to found Teach for India in 2008, serves on several boards, was named a global leader for tomorrow at the World Economic Forum and is the recipient of many awards. Let's see how this amazing woman grabbed the opportunity to make change by ignoring the past, changing the present to give low-income children a future. Hi Shaheen and welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. You lived outside India your entire childhood and studied abroad for undergrad and masters. Did you ever feel like an outsider or was it easy to assimilate? Was there a point when you considered not returning to India? So returning to India happened a little bit by mistake for me. We lived my whole childhood outside of India and we would continue to come back on summer vacations and so I had a connection to India but never actually thought that I would land up living in India strange things happen it was just a moment actually it wasn't a thoughtful choice to come back to India my whole life was in the US my friends my first boyfriend my family continued to be there but something inside me just felt like coming back i never really thought about it growing up but in the spur of a moment luckily took the decision to come back how were your parents about that decision were they also in india or were they still abroad they were still abroad i was supposed to go back into my second year at tufts university and i was booked to go back a week after they had gone back so they were expecting me back home a few days later when i decided to stay it was quite unexpected for them i remember picking up the phone very nervous to tell him that i didn't actually want to go back to the us and i wanted to stay in india what exactly was the reason that made you just decide on the spur of the moment that i'm going to stay it was a particular moment and i can share a little bit about that moment it was a series of so many little things that had happened over a long period of time that led to that moment the moment itself was fairly unremarkable i think most of us have had a moment similar to this i was in a taxi it stopped at a traffic light and some children ran up to the window and they were begging and in that moment i questioned why am i going back what more can i do in india when i look back i think there were so many dots mom was a speech therapist we had kids in and out of our home i had been volunteering since the age of 12 with children and with animals so i think there were a lot of seeds planted over a long time that led to that actual moment and saying yes i think it makes sense to stay 
the Parsi community is known for philanthropy. So your career choice was probably sealed into your DNA. As you were growing up and going to attend schools in all these countries abroad, how was your experience? Was it easy to assimilate? Did you feel like you were different from all those children? And did you have any adapting methods? I grew up as a very, very shy child, very disciplined, always did what I needed to, mainly out of fear, less out of passion for being in school, honestly, and never really felt like I fit in completely. But I don't think I was that aware of that either. I also had some health issues as a younger child. I had to wear wooden boots for four years because I couldn't walk properly. I used to wear a back brace for four years. So that made me feel a little bit different from the kids around me as well. But overall, I just feel I had a really happy childhood. Lots of different experiences, lots of travel, lots of animals that, I mean, animals are very close to my heart. So lots of pets, a wonderful, very nurturing family, lots of extracurricular activities. But yeah, something felt missing. I I wasn't able to quite put my finger on it growing up. Your education experience, your privileged background did not deter you from turning to community service. Can you take us through those growing years and how it impacted who you became? What was the actual trigger to say, I can't go on in this privileged manner? I think two things were really formative. One was animals. My brother and I would just pick up stray anything, cats, dogs. I had a bat. I had a slow loris. We would look after animals and that shaped my understanding for something that is neglected, that is alone. And the second were just every summer I would volunteer. I worked with autistic children one summer. I worked with visually impaired children one summer. I worked in a school that was actually founded by my mom and others many years before for the hearing impaired. I worked in an orphanage. So I would spend my summers working with children. And very early on, I realized I just loved children, that children gave me a lot of joy, a lot of happiness. The little things that they were able to do gave me a sense of purpose. I don't actually remember ever being in a position where I needed to evaluate the choices and get a lot of information. I was very lucky to just have very organically understood that about myself at a very young age. All these voluntary jobs, that uh, volunteering that you did, was it in India or was it while you were living abroad? When we used to come back to India for summer vacations, I did some volunteering here. When we were abroad, I did some volunteering where we lived as well. So a, a combination of both. The orphanage was in Indonesia. That was very formative for me. The Center for Autistic Teenagers were much taller than me, big boys, uh, not very easy to work with, was in New York when we were in Greenwich. Um, The School for Visually Impaired was in India. So range of, of different volunteering opportunities. But I'm such a big believer that volunteering when you're younger just really breaks down a lot of the walls in the world for you because your ability to connect with people from very different life experiences than your own becomes a little bit more real. Which of all these places abroad was closest to your heart? If you had to pick that I'm not going to move back to India, what country or city would you have picked? I think I would say Indonesia. I was very struck by the gentleness of the Indonesian people. Very kind, very gentle, very quiet It's just so beautiful, so steeped in culture and art. That's a very important part of my life as well. 
Bali is very close to my heart and I'm sure many listeners, but, you know, just escaping to Ubud and seeing how the Balinese see good and bad as two sides of the same coin, really revere every moment of life. Indonesia was very formative for me. Any fond memories of your initial volunteering efforts? I remember a lot of individual children that I met. Those are the most special memories for me at the Happy Home and, and School for the Blind in Mumbai, where I volunteered as a much younger person. There was a little child called Mariapa and another one called Vivek. Both were just very, very close to my heart. I, I remember having so much fun with them. They loved trying to do new things. They would play cricket with a ball with a, a bell inside so that they could hear it. I also remember being very struck by a moment in the orphanage in Indonesia where there was a child who had a disorder. Fluid had collected in the child's head and that the head was very, very oversized. And so the child couldn't do anything. The child just lay in bed. I remember spending a lot of time just reading stories and listening to music next to this child who wasn't really able to connect much at all with me or with anybody. You said your mother and a few friends started the orphanage. Your grandmother was also very much into philanthropy. Anything that they did to make you feel like, yes, I have to follow their footsteps? Just a clarification. Mom started the hearing impaired school. And my grandmother, I don't know if it was philanthropy, but she was just a believer in doing good for the people around her all the time. She was extremely open-hearted, generous, a real risk taker. I remember being with my nanny at times where she would meet somebody in an elevator. And by the time the lift had reached the eighth floor where she lived, she'd invited them home for dinner. My nanny played a very, very big role in shaping the way I am today. She was also one of the most unconventional people I have ever known in my whole life. She started learning to paint at the age of 70. She then went on to paint her entire house. She would take down her curtains and make them into clothes and wear them. She was an absolute free spirit. So very deep influences from her, especially. That's so amazing. And you have two daughters. How are you impacting them? Have they been volunteering since they were kids? Have your mom and grandmother had any role also in impacting them? I have no idea what the answer to that question is. My two kids are very different from each other. My elder daughter did spend a lot of time volunteering, a lot of time at Akanksha, Teach for India. My younger daughter did too. She was part of a musical that we did called Maya. But her interests are very different at this stage. She's 17. Her interests are not linked to what I do. I'm hopeful that somewhere the seeds of all of this and the people that I've been able to meet in my life because of this work will be a very formative influence on both of them. But who knows? Mom has played a huge role in helping support me. I raised them basically as a single mother for all of their lives. It's been tough to manage both Akanksha and then Teach for India, even more responsibility there along with two girls at home. Mom, of course, played a big role. How easy was it to start Akanksha and who was your support system when you started? I started Akanksha when I was 18. The great thing about starting anything when you're 18 is 
you don't really think too much about balance, well-being, support system. You just go out and do it. I've always been a little bit of a rebel and coming back to India was a little bit rebellious and then walking into the community and starting Akanksha when I knew nothing about anything really. There was such a need to go back to my parents and say, see, I made the right decision. I've done the right thing. Most of it, I just figured out on my own. The kind of support system I started Teach for India with many years later was very, very different from the support system that I had when I started Akanksha. What I did do was go to friends and family and beg for some starting money. First five years, we were all volunteers. So our only expense was a bus to bring the children from the community to the school and a little bit of money for teaching materials, etc. And then also arm twisting college friends to come in and teach. Our initial teachers were all college students who were friends of mine. Our initial board was all college students as well. I couldn't have started actually without that. What year was this? I started going to the community in 89. The organization was registered in 91. It was something that nobody had done before. So it was completely out of the box thinking. What prompted you to think about this kind of a model? When I started, it wasn't about starting an organization or building it into something big. There was no business plan. If I were to be fully honest, it was just a desire to teach kids. That's when I was trying to get other college students around me to teach as well, who I felt had a lot of time, a lot of potential, and just weren't using it towards India's development. The idea in the beginning was very, very simple. Luckily, it turned out to be quite a powerful and lasting idea. That idea was, as a nation, we really have everything we need to educate our children well. We have young people who are willing to teach. We have young people who are willing to learn. We have spaces lying empty in our cities that can be teaching spaces. We have financial resources that we can mobilize. How do we bring together available resources to be able to give a really good education to all kids? And actually, when I started, it wasn't even really about education. Um, it was just about thinking, oh my gosh, like I grew up with a childhood where I had so much. I felt so safe to explore and try new things. I was allowed to be a kid. And when I looked around at children in the community, the initial thing that struck me was they don't have a chance to just be kids. They don't have a chance to just come in and have fun and engage with learning and play games and have just a good time together. So the initial idea was just that. Can we create a space that we can bring kids to every day where they can just escape for a few hours and be children? We realized very soon that learning was the most powerful enabler of that. I did volunteer at Akanksha in Pune for, I think, about five years. I taught something called Totorobics. It's just a fun thing for kids. I then switched to reading with Akanksha kids. The, your whole point was about emphasizing the English also. What prompted that? It was a lot of conversations with parents in the community saying, what do you really want for your kids? Several themes came back. We want good health care. We want water. When I started, there was no running water at all in the community. We want education. And when I double clicked with them on like what kind of education, a lot of what they said was we want our kids to have the opportunity to go to college and get a good job. And we see English as being a really important avenue for that. So that was the main reason. 
The second reason is it's what we could give, which perhaps other stakeholders in the child's life were not able to give. We were able to teach them this additional skill of English because we spoke it fluently. I've always been a huge believer that children need their mother tongue, but that English as a skill in today's world is very important for kids. Year after year, when we asked our kids, what did Akanksha really give you? English was one of the things that, that surfaced the most. English gave us the opportunity to access opportunities that we would not otherwise perhaps have had access to. That's so true. That is the language that unites the world. In those early years and even now, have there been times when you wake up totally unmotivated? What helps you in those low moments? There are many low moments, but I would differentiate those a little bit with not being motivated. I often tell people like, which job in the world do you go into your office and get just overwhelmed by love and smiles and cries of dee 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 dee? You experience this as you worked with the kids as well, so you know, but... There's so much that children give you back in such a consistent and constant way, honestly, irrespective of what you do. That's been a huge motivator for me. I've managed over these 30 years of working to stay really close to children. So whenever I get sort of lost in, are we doing the right things? And how do we navigate organizational challenges? I always go back to the individual children that I know and talk to them and spend time with them. The second huge motivator has just been the vision of what we're trying to do. When people say, oh, Teach for India, Akanksha, like you've done a lot. I actually look in the mirror and I say, no, no, we have not done a lot. Look at the problem in the country. We've taken not even baby steps. The road ahead is so long and it's so difficult. I think to me, that is the biggest motivator. Until we can reach Every child in this, when I say we, I mean we collectively as a nation, until we can reach every child and unleash their potential, the work is not done. So there is no question of giving up when that is the reality. I wanted to talk to you about how Gandhian philosophy has affected you. Other than Gandhi, have there been any mentors who influenced or guided you along your journey with Akanksha and of course, Teach for India? I love this question. I think Gandhi is one of the most extraordinary human beings for like a hundred million reasons, but mostly because I don't think I've ever known of another person who so deeply lived what he believed. You may choose to argue with what he believed, but his alignment of head, hand, heart was unbelievable. And so, yes, his thinking has greatly shaped me. He continues to be a huge role model for me. The way that happened is also interesting for me. I happened to take a group of Akanksha kids many years ago to Ahmedabad, to the Sabarmati Ashram. I came across an organization and a gentleman called Jayesh Pai, who today is one of my biggest mentors and sort of the closest example that I have in today's world of a living Gandhian. Jayesh Pai lives just trying to make things better in the tiniest ways for the people around him every single second of his life. It's remarkable to see that. That was where my journey started with saying, maybe my life's mission is providing an excellent education to every child. But what about the journey of getting there? And what can I do in the moments of my life to make myself a little bit 
more of the human being that I want to be. That whole experience with the Ahmedabad ecosystem and through Jayesh by the many friends I met who are doing the most remarkable things from experimenting with a gift economy to writing music videos and gifting them to the world, just the most exceptional human beings. That deeply shaped me. Your question on mentoring more broadly, like every single day I have examples to give you of people that have mentored me. What's coming to mind the most right now as we speak are the many children who have profoundly shaped my way of thinking and my way of being. It's been in small, humorous and life-changing ways. I just feel so lucky to have worked with children because I just believe you learn such profound wisdom from children. Can you give us an example of something you've learned from one of your Kangsha Teach for India children? <laughs> you know, I'm remembering years ago, I had gone for a holiday and I came back. And as soon as I walked into class, this little girl looked at me and said, Didi, you've become so fat. I mean, it was so beautiful. The honesty in that moment, her ability to just call things the way she sees them without a filter, without wondering what the reaction will be, whether she'll be judged. That moment just came to mind right now in a more profound sense. I think it's watching kids struggle so much with their lives every single day and still smile and be so brave and be so generous and giving of themselves. I found that deeply humbling. I can't even point to a hundred, two hundred, three hundred children that have shown me that again and again. I'm remembering a story right now of one of our children. This story was told by one of our Teach for India fellows where she lost her mother and then she lost her father. Our fellow had graduated from the fellowship and gone abroad to study. When he heard about the death of her second parent, he was at a loss for how do you call a, a 12-year-old and what do you say on the phone long distance? And he tells the story of calling her and her not being able to stop asking him how he's doing. She had just lost her parent and yet she said, but Baya, tell me, how is it? Are, are you homesick? How do you feel being away? How is college? How Their generosity of spirit is so unbelievably phenomenal. I, I could go on and on telling you stories. One of my biggest mentors in my life is somebody you know very well. It's Anuaga. I think she's just the most phenomenal woman. But I reached her at a much older age. How important is it for kids when they're younger to have mentors? Firstly, like plus a hundred million to what you said about Anu. She's been such a huge, huge, huge role model and mentor for me and so many around me as well. I just think mentoring is so important, so important. If every child had mentors to learn from, who accepted them unconditionally, challenged them, inspired them, I do think we'd be in a very different place. I often think if there were one wish I had for every single child in the world, it would be to have one person in their lives who had unconditional belief and trust and love for them. The world would just be fundamentally different if that was true for all of us. How different is that from what a parent does with a child? It's really different. Of course, a parent is a huge role model to a child. 
But I think having someone a little bit more removed, a little bit less emotionally connected to the child, sometimes the ability of a mentor to see and understand what a child needs and counterintuitively for a child to share also what they need, because there's no baggage attached to it, no emotions attached to it. That's one of the the big differences. The other is, you know, you don't choose your parents. And so there is good and bad to that. But you can choose your mentors. And I think that act of being able to choose who you need as a mentor at what point you need them is quite powerful. You've been a mother to thousands of children at Akanksha and TFI, and you have your own two children. How different has it been juggling being a single mother to your kids and mothering all these other children? How have you balanced it? I often think, how can two children at home take as much time and effort and love and belief as like 38,000 at work? It's true, they do. It's a beautiful question. I have never been good at balance. So I spent many years actually feeling quite guilty all the time. When I was at work, I'd feel guilty about being at home. When I was at home, I'd feel guilty about being at work. I was never able to rationalize how can I prioritize dropping my child off at a birthday party and spending time there when I was getting an emergency call from a child whose mother had just passed away or who was suffering a lot in the community. And so that's been like an ongoing dilemma for me. At some point, I just let go of the guilt. It's just so unhelpful. Like intellectually, it's so unhelpful. It's not helping anybody. It's not helping me, my kids, my work. You mentioned Anu, but Anu played a big role in shifting me at that point. And she probably doesn't even know this, but she sat down with me one day when I was complaining about something at work and she looked straight at me and she said, why do you think you're a superwoman? She's like, I just want you to know that you're not a superwoman. You're ordinary. You don't need to be the best at home and you don't need to be the best at work. And you don't need to be on a pedestal for yourself or for anybody around you. And in fact, if you come off the pedestal, people's ability to connect with you is just going to be fundamentally different. I just felt such relief hearing that, that like, yes, yes, I am ordinary. I have so many problems and vulnerabilities and every day I'm making so many mistakes. That felt very empowering. And over time, I think I was able to let go of most of the guilt and say when the balance feels imbalanced to me, not to the world around, but to me, then I will work to rebalance it. I don't need to define my life and balance and well-being in the way that others do. That's a very personal thing for each one of us. I think the courage to be able to say that to myself made a very big difference in my life. The courage to raise... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your children as a single mother, especially in a country where it is not looked upon that favorably. How did you manage that? 
I feel like in some ways, it's so much easier to raise your children alone. The big challenge was one of time, right? If two parents are there, the ability to share everything. Now I have a wonderful partner in my life for the last five years. And so I can see what a just beautiful, magical, amazing thing it is to be able to talk about things with the children, with somebody in your life. But I think as they grew up, being alone, I said, there is a positive side and it is wonderful. And we had a lot of very special experiences and a very supportive family around. So while I wasn't married raising them, I always had a lot of friends, family support in raising them. Your parents moved back to India? They did a few years after I did, very close by. And so that made a huge difference. When did you realize that Akanksha is a success and it's a scalable model? When did that aha moment happen? Hmm. Success is relative. But I think when we saw that kids were excited to learn and were actually learning, and when we saw that the volunteers and staff and teachers that worked with them were also excited and also learning and changing, that has been just really beautiful. I think a lot about why I do what I do. It is education, but it's much more than education. It's really about believing that we have very little clue, most of us, about the depth of our potential and our capability and our capacity to love and give. And I think children and the adults that worked with them discovering that about themselves that, oh my gosh, like I'm capable. I can do this. I'm a unique person. I have gifts that matter. That to me is a scalable idea. And what the model and how the model shifts and changes, that's all secondary. But that idea that like potential has to be unleashed, we need to keep doing whatever we can to be able to do that. That really mattered. Where is Akanksha today? Akanksha moved from when I started it. It was an after school model for children that either were not in school or were in schools and learning very little. And then 10 years down the line, it morphed into a full school model where Akanksha actually runs K through 10 schools now in partnership with the government across Mumbai and Pune. These schools are doing absolutely beautiful things for children. Um, graduation rates are almost at 100%. Kids are going on studying colleges in India and abroad. More than that, kids are growing up with just really solid value systems that they develop step by step over time. They're exploring their passions. That really is what Akanksha is doing, running really excellent, high quality schools that are taking children whose demographics might have determined their destiny and say, no, that's not going to happen. I remember volunteering at a Vidyaniketan school and being blown away by how clean the school was, amazing facilities, the computer room, the way the teachers were set up, the whole extracurricular activities that happened. I forced my son to volunteer and talk to them about basketball and rap and stuff like that. I was just so amazed. It could have been a school that I could have sent my child to. Yeah, my hope is that one day every child gets a school like that. In 2006, you met Wendy Kopp of Teach for America. Was that a planned meeting? It was a destiny. How did it transform you? That was destiny. At Akanksha, we had had four Teach for America alumni 
who had come and volunteered. All four of them didn't know each other. They just happened to have volunteered at Akanksha. I happened to meet all four of them at different points in the year. And I was really, really struck by these alum, the kind of passion for educational equity that they communicated, what they were doing. I, I was just intrigued. And I said, let me find out more about this organization. So when I was in New York, I just did whatever I could to get a meeting with Wendy. I walked into her office and I said, Wendy, I said, you know, India needs something like this. Not thinking that I wanted to be involved in it. I was very, very happy at Akanksha, but really believing that India needs something like this. We need a program where our brightest, most committed young people stand up and address educational equity and not as something passing, but as a career and as something that's going to eventually change the system. I got the meeting. I picked up her book, I think 24 hours before the meeting, read it cover to cover through the night and walked in and met her. She was sort of intrigued. I left, came back to India, wrote to her and she wrote back saying, Shaheen, it was a great idea. I in fact even broached it with my Teach for America board and they said, Wendy, there's too much work happening that needs to happen in America. Please forget about this idea. I said, no, I don't want to forget about this idea. So I went back a month later and I met her again. And, and this time I said, Wendy, just come to India. Just visit and just see if you think an idea like this is feasible. And she came. I remember Anu was with us at the time and we walked into municipal schools with her and we took her onto college campuses. And we said, like, do you think this idea of college students after they graduate, spending two years full-time teaching in some of the poorest schools, would it work in India? She left and what she said before she left was, I came to India really prepared for the many differences. What I was not prepared for were the many similarities. And she said, educational inequity is endemic across nations. She said that the idealism of young college students is again common across context. She said the need for education is common. She said this can happen in India. That's when we started planning. I told her that I would just help her plan the idea. I never thought that I would actually step in and <laughs> do it. And the reason I actually stepped in and did it was because we couldn't find a CEO. If we had waited any longer, we would have had to lose a whole nother year. And so Wendy just said, step in for a year. You can always go back to Akanksha. And that's like, I got into it. Oh my God, it's such a beautiful story that you made me tear up. It's just so touching. We need things like this. We need this to happen for India. What was different about launching TFIs compared to Akanksha? I don't even know if you can compare the two. They are different, but they're not. For me personally, what was different is when I started Akanksha, it was it was a little bit about me. I loved kids. I wanted to teach. I wanted to do what I felt passionate about. When I started Teach for India, the question for me had changed. There was a, a much deeper responsibility to do this at scale because I had seen the impact on children. So the question really wasn't, what do I want to do next in my career? What needs to be done? And when I asked myself that question, because actually my real love, if you talk to anybody that knows me well, they'll say Shaheen loves kids more than anyone else. And so for me, Akanksha was one step closer to children, whereas Teach for India was one step removed. It was working with the adults that will work with children. But 
that didn't matter at that juncture because I said ultimately more kids need the opportunity to unleash their potential. And I don't think that it will happen unless we change leadership in the country. I mean, we just don't care about education in our country. We can say that we do, but we don't have the political will. We don't invest in the resources. We don't create the mind space for education. We need to change the way our leaders think about education. If people in positions of influence and leadership care about solving the problem, they will solve the problem. Education took a hit during the pandemic and you created this whole reimagining education in the world and schools with students and educators. How did it come about? Is there any outcome from this initiative? The important thing to remember is India was so behind in education even before the pandemic struck. We were already at a place where 60% of our kids were not able to read by grade five, do simple math. 70% of our kids were falling behind from grade three. And then you compound that with issues of child safety, child protection. When the pandemic struck and schools were the first thing to shut, everything stopped. Everyone, including Teach for India, We bent over backwards to make whatever efforts we could. We raised money for hardware. We got relief efforts going. But basically, for most kids in the country, it's been very little learning, which estimates are that that compounds by 3x, right? So for 15 months out of school, you're talking about 30 to 45 months equivalent of learning loss compounded by loss of social interaction, leading to isolation, leading to mental anxiety. It's just horrific what kids have gone through. And while we get onto debates and talk about the fact that kids are not engaged online, we need to remember that like 64% of our kids don't even have access to hardware. They just don't even enter the question when we talk about learning loss. The third thing is when you look at the projected impact it's even more frightening, right? Studies are now coming out saying this is going to mean lifelong um, a lowering of lifetime income. This is going to mean greatly increased mental anxiety. For kids in grade three, for example, estimates are it's going to take 10 years for kids to catch up with the learning loss that they've had. So we have no idea what's hit us and the work that it's going to take to bring our kids back. And to compound it, when I say education isn't a priority in our country, we're just not planning for what is going to happen when these kids go back to school. Like, what is the teacher going to do when a child who used to be at a grade four level now has forgotten everything they ever learned and another child hasn't because they've had online access? How is the teacher going to be able to cope? How are kids going to be able to cope? What about the emotional trauma that kids have gone through? How are we equipping ourselves for that? What we've tried to do is let's at least start this dialogue, circulars, telling us that bars and restaurants and offices are open, but there's no mention of schools. It's just unacceptable. Government education departments shut down over 15 months is unacceptable. There have to be better ways to prepare and look after our children. 2% of all the funding that went into COVID went towards learning. 2%. Like you can understand a skew to health, but you cannot ignore the long-term implications. What are our children going to do when other health issues hit them 10, 15 years from now, but they're not able to afford, they don't have a job to be able to look after themselves. Going forward, 
How do you think education in India can become more equitable? My biggest answer to that is leadership. We need people that want it to be equitable. We need people skilled enough to think through the multiple steps that need to happen to make that happen. That's sort of my number one thing. Let's get people at all levels of the system that really believe in equity for education and are keeping kids at the center. Even now with school reopening, kids are not really at the center of that decision or our actions would be different. So that's the first. The second is we need to redefine the purpose of education. If ever we've had an opportunity to reimagine, it's now because of the pandemic. People have really seen what education is and isn't. If we go back and we continue to think about it narrowly as academics to get through an exam, to get a job, that's not the whole purpose of education. And so how can education be about self, but also be about other and also be about making the country and the world better? That's the first thing that we need to reimagine. And when we define it more broadly, then we need to measure success very differently. Success cannot be a single board exam at the end of school. Look at what we're doing to our children. Look at the pressure. Look at what they struggled with because of that. So how do we make assessment continuous about your progress? How do we define success for children differently? Because kids are different and they will blossom in different ways. So I think Purpose of education, the way we assess and then the way we teach needs to change and what we teach needs to change. We need to be teaching 21st century skills, integrating them into content. So really the why, what, how, all of it needs a big revamp. India believed in education. If you go back into ancient India, there was that Patshala system of learning about life skills, not just the academic skills. This is something else that I think about. How has gender played a role in TFI and Akanksha? How do you make sure there's equality there? And how is it going to impact girl children in schools? Yeah, it's so heartbreaking when you see what our girls and their mothers go through. I don't know where to start even with this. We did a beautiful program at Teach for India called the Kids Education Revolution. We had lots and lots of students talking about what they felt passionate about. It was just heartening to see that the number one issue that they were raising as young women was gender and gender equality. I do think there's been a trickle down from me to our girls and they are speaking out and they're much more aware than they ever have been. And that's very exciting. At the same time, I think we need to be educating our boys as much, if not more than our girls, because ultimately, if girls are empowered, but the mindsets of the men around them don't change, it's very, very, very tough for them to break out of it. And so how do we bring conversation, dialogue to our boys and our girls around all of this, not just around gender, but around the whole gamut of rights, the whole gamut of values that are enshrined in our constitutions. We've finished writing a beautiful curriculum called India and I. The idea of it is to take the four values enshrined in our preamble of our constitution and say, what does practicing liberty look like if I'm in third grade? What does fraternity mean 
uh, if I'm an eighth grader, what does justice look like? And so encouraging dialogue, real case studies, activities, social experiments with our kids when they're young, I think that will shape them very differently. I can't imagine that kids coming out of a system like that will treat women badly. My great hope is that they will not. A school in Kanpur study hall was given an award by Michelle Obama for case studies, doing something to make sure that boys also understand how to deal with girls. I think more and more educators like you in India are speaking a different narrative. So hopefully things are going to change. It's going to be a long haul. Do you have any volunteers who come to India to be Teach for India fellows and then want to continue? What stories do they take back to their countries? So we do. It's a very small of the cohort, but the fellowship is open to people of Indian origin or people with Indian residency living abroad. Every year we have a few people. We also have many people who are studying in college in the US who come back to do the fellowship. And I, I think that Just the diversity is where a lot of the learning comes from for the cohort itself. So we have people in our cohort who have grown up in communities very similar to the children that we serve. And we have high income fellows who have lived abroad, had a very privileged existence, want to give back. And across the spectrum, there is diversity in the cohort. It's great for diaspora kids to see how it is in India and learn about that diversity. You serve on several boards. How do you choose them and which of them do you feel is closest to your heart? Mm, I guess Akanksha still because I'm completely not involved in Akanksha operationally and life comes full circle. A Teach for India fellow from our first cohort today is the CEO of Akanksha. And Saurabh is just doing a fantastic job there. So operationally, I'm disconnected, but I do play the role of a very active board member. I'm always accessible to anyone who needs me at Akanksha. So I think that'll always be close to my heart. One, because I founded it, but also because just good schools for children that need it are, I think, the most important thing in the world. So feel very close to Akanksha's continued mission. And what of the many awards that you've been given is closest to your heart? I, I have a bit of a funny take on awards. They, they really give me a complex because every time I get an award or recognition for me, it's a reminder of actually how little I've done and how long the road ahead is. The second part is I do worry a little bit that I never want to be in any way, shape or form working for an award, but I want to be working for children. And so I tend to deprioritize a little bit the role of awards in my life. Having said that, I think the Jamanlan Bajaj Award was really special because it came with a trip to Gujarat where we were able to understand a little bit of, of his philosophy, reconnect with Gandhi, visit another ashram where Gandhi was. And so I thought the way the whole award was done was extremely beautiful and thoughtful. And more meaningful to you. How does Shaheen Mistri stay grounded? I just feel so lucky to have so many things that keep me grounded. I have two daughters. I have a fabulous partner. I have a supportive family. I'm obsessed with animals. I've got two beautiful dogs at home. I've got four cats. 
in our Pune home. Over the last year, I've become slightly obsessed, maybe following in the footsteps of my nani with art. I've started learning how to draw and paint. And that's my big love right now. I spend a lot of time listening to music. I play the piano. I feel lucky to have a very full life. And how do you bond with your Akanksha and TFI colleagues? A lot of people would say this, but I feel I work with the best human beings in the entire world. I feel so blessed every single day. They are my heroes, like the things that they do, visible, invisible, every single day with so much love and so much passion. It's just so inspiring. So yeah, I just feel humbled by the people that I work with. I'm still very close to many of my Akanksha colleagues from 30 years ago. Many of them are doing the most incredible work today as well. It just feels like a second family. Any story that you can share about how one of your Akanksha colleagues has gone on to do something very different and incredible now? In the early days, one of our social workers, Joyce, who is just a ball of passion and would spend all her time in the community, would forget to eat lunch. And she got married and she had a child and they realized very early on that the child had a very severe uh, regressive disability. Joyce was from a very humble background. Her husband was working in the Middle East at that point. She had never been abroad. And she said, I'm going to just find a way to get to London because I know that for Rachel, her daughter, who today is not able to eat, not able to walk, very, very severe condition. She said she's going to have better opportunities there. And I was thinking like, how, Joyce, how are you going to do that? But she found a way to get to London. And not only did she make a life for her daughter, but she chose to work with children and adults in trauma herself. So she spends all of her day hours supporting others in trauma. And then she comes back. Rachel needs attention every single minute of the day and night. She just stands out as such a heroic example of compassion to me. I could give you so many examples. <laughs> so many. When you go away on retreats with your TFI team, is there something that has happened on any of these retreats that has really inspired you or motivated you? One retreat stands out in particular where we were in Ahmedabad with our leadership team and we decided to go on a padyatra and just walk without any money for 24 hours. We said, if people look after us, they will. And if they don't, they won't. And we walked and walked and walked. Um, and it was 10 o'clock at night and we were not able to find food. We were in a very crowded fruit market. And we stopped to ask one of the fruit vendors for some fruit. He looked at us. We were a group of 14. And he said, come with me. And he took us to this little restaurant on the first floor. And he said, I'm buying all of you dinner. It was the most incredible experience and just such affirmation of the goodness in the world and our ability to ask and for the universe to provide. We went on to sleep on the road that night. And we were sleeping right next to a group of people that were actually doing drugs at night. There were mosquitoes all night. But we woke up the next morning feeling so liberated that we tried to step into the shoes of other people. It was one of my most favorite leadership experiences. 
Shaheen, more power to you. I don't know if I could have ever done that. As much as I wish I could understand and absorb how the other side lives, hats off to you for doing something like that. Where do you see your future? So Teach for India is just going through a planning of our next phase. We're almost 4,000 alumni leaders now working at all levels of the system. We want to grow that to 50,000 leaders in the next 10 years. So scale is a big part of our plans. We have all these wonderful new programs. We want to start a fellowship for students as well as for fellows. So I see myself here for a while to help get that plan off the ground. I also feel giving power to students making them partners in the system is very, very, very close to my heart. And so I see a lot of my time and energy being spent there in the future. That's the immediate future. But I think, again, I hope the question that continues to ground me is where am I most needed and that I have the courage to follow that question to wherever I need to go. That's an amazing decision. I have a rapid fire round for you. Bombay or Pune? Bombay. Ashoka Fellow or Global Leader of Tomorrow? Ashoka Fellow. St. Xavier's College, Mumbai or Tufts, Boston? Xavier's. The book Grey Sunshine or Redrawing India? Grey Sunshine. Favorite city? Right now I'm thinking of Bali, but many favorite cities. Favorite cuisine? Italian. Your favorite teacher role model? My friends Rajshri and Anjali, two of the best teachers I've seen. Your favorite leisure activity? Art, right now. Shaheen, I want to thank you for sharing your story with the Ape Women community. For our listeners, you can catch this and other episodes on our social media handle at Ape Women Global on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>